You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week, I'm having a conversation with the wonderful Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani about the book that she's just published. It's called Sick Enough. And we talk about, we well, the outline of the book, the reasoning behind the book, why it's needed, and get into some of the, the details into some of the chapters and why it's called Sick Enough. But let's just get straight into that conversation. Here is Dr. Gaudiani. Hey, I'm Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani. I am an internal medicine physician who specializes in eating disorders. I have an outpatient clinic in Denver, Colorado and see patients from around the United States because I'm lucky enough to do telemedicine with folks. And the whole reason for my clinic is to provide great outpatient medical care for individuals of all ages, all genders, and all body size and shapes so that anyone who has a disordered relationship between their body and food can get sensitive, thoughtful, and evidence-based medical care. And um, those of you listening who recognize Dr. Gaudiani's voice, yes, Dr. Gaudiani has been on this podcast many times. And today we're going to talk about a couple of things. But first of all, we're going to talk about the fact that this wonderful woman has written a book and it's available. So uh, where should we start with the book? How, how, If you were to describe this book in a nutshell, what is it? My book is called Sick Enough, A Guide to the Medical Complications of Eating Disorders. And I wrote this book for patients and their loved ones and for people who are curious about how to better care for individuals with eating disorders by bringing both science and metaphor and social justice and my own 10 years of clinical experience to helping people understand what goes wrong in their bodies when they're not able to take care of them properly through nutrition and rest. So tell me about the title to start with, Sick Enough. You know, so many of my patients over the years, Tabitha, have come to me and said, Dr. G, I'm embarrassed to be talking to you. I don't even think that I'm sick enough to be seeking dot, dot, dot. They might be seeking hospital care. It might be seeking residential care. It might be seeking a therapist. It might be seeking the permission to change behaviors and to start really taking care of themselves. And so I named it Sick Enough because my message is whether you have one of the medical complications described in this book or 10 or zero, if you have an eating disorder or disordered eating, just with that problem, you are sick enough to seek treatment and get well. It's, the book is aimed at people who have eating disorders themselves, or is it also aimed at, say, other clinicians? Or is it, you know, is it mostly written for people actually in recovery? That's a lovely question. It's all of the above. Mm. I wrote this book the way that I've been talking to my patients one-on-one for the last decade. As we sit at the bedside or as we sit in my clinic, And they come to me with their unique medical problems, whether measurable or unmeasurable. And we really talk about 
the objective evidence of body suffering, that the elucidation of which breaks through that denial, that sense patients with eating disorders have of, I'm fine. In fact, I should probably go harder tomorrow. And so I, I wrote it in a way that's meant to bring enough medicine that it feels really rigorous and, and scientific and evidence-based, but it's expressed in the way that I actually share the information with my patients. So it's meant to be really understandable. So for instance, an individual with an eating disorder or disordered eating might pick it up because they don't have access to a good doctor. And they might have this be their first realization of, oh my gosh, these things that I just thought were unavoidable, they're from my eating disorder. There's something else I could do. Or it might be that someone who's really been suffering with their eating disorder and feeling alone might give it to their family member and say, could you please read this and see what I'm going through and develop more compassion and also more advocacy for me so that I can better fight this. And then in addition, you know, I've been so lucky, Tabitha, to go and speak around the country and around the world to eating disorder professionals to help improve the overall provision of medical care to people with eating disorders. And so this book is for them, too, because I can't be in a lecture hall with every person. And it's for the doctor who doesn't know about eating disorders, but at least is curious. And to that doctor... Patients and families can bring this book and say, hey, look, here's what you need to know. Won't talk through every single chapter right now because there's there's 22 of them. Um, but we'll go and I'll put the chapters in the show notes this episode so that people can have an actual look at chapter by chapter. But there's there's five distinct parts, isn't there? There's part one, which is labeled not enough calories or titled not enough calories. Part two, titled purging. Part three is about patients in larger bodies. Um, part four is what you call the unmeasurables. And part five, special populations. So um, I think most of those are relatively self-explanatory. People will understand. Um, but maybe explain the unmeasurables section. Yeah. What, what... One of my favorite aspects of doing outpatient clinical work these last few years has been a real dawning realization of how little I knew about the medical complications of eating disorders, even though I felt like I knew a fair bit. And one of the parts that I've really humbly come to realize I need to know more about, and I started reading more and listening more, was for medical problems that occur in people with eating disorders, where there's not a blood test for it, there's not an x-ray for it, there's not a CAT scan for it. And yet the problem really affects the patient deeply. So for instance, irritable bowel syndrome, which is a poorly described uh, condition in the sense that doctors often invalidate patients in the moment of discussing irritable bowel syndrome, as in don't worry, it's only irritable bowel syndrome, which is so invalidating. IBS can change lives and cause catastrophic malnutrition. It can be the trigger for avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, ARFID, or for anorexia or for bulimia. Um, and 
IBS, you can't biopsy the bowel and say, ah, yes, I see it's IBS. You actually have to go back to the fundamental act of the physician-patient relationship and listen to the story. You have to listen to the whole story of the patient's relationship with their digestive system, food, body, stress, and self-care, and what's been tried and what's failed before. And it turns out that there's so many things that come along with IBS that can't be measured easily, but whose treatment markedly improves quality of life and makes recovery easier. Another such example would be the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, which is a really complicated syndrome, not just of heart rate troubles when people stand up, but of chronic fatigue and brain fog and joint pain and flushing and rage and diarrhea and this has been a whole new world for me. So the unmeasurables oftentimes aren't caused directly by an eating disorder, but for people with really strong mind-body connections, as in many of those who develop eating disorders, these diseases can occur concurrently and can be major stumbling blocks in recovery. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's also one of the areas that most people find themselves in a situation where they have something else going on and they they know that for that other thing that's going on, they probably need to go and speak to a medical doctor, as in um, in an internist or, um, um, you know, a a gastro doctor, or they they know that they need to go and speak to somebody um, that falls into that department. But it turns into an additional difficulty when maybe their doctor isn't also an eating disorder specialist and doesn't understand that those things merge. That's exactly right. And not only is there a siloing in Western medicine of body and soul and never the twain shall meet, but also especially individuals who are in larger bodies when they go to see medical specialists, oftentimes that medical specialist's internalized size stigma and fat phobia causes harm to the patient. The original complaint isn't addressed adequately, and furthermore, they are recommended to do behaviors that we understand to be eating disordered in the service of weight loss, which for this health at every size provider is absolutely unacceptable. And it's one of the reasons why I strongly believe that Physicians and healthcare providers in general are an oppressor class to patients in larger bodies and to those with eating disorders. Okay, so we could talk about that for a really long time. <laughs> I just want to, though, um, I just want to discuss um, one other part, and then people can can write in an email and look at the chapter list and ask maybe questions based on that. But I'd like to talk about uh, the part one, not enough calories part, because I think a lot of that also ties in with that sick enough title. And we're always trying to convince people, yes, this is a problem. These things are a problem. And I think that that, 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 that part one might, might help people that are maybe listening and thinking, am I even sick enough to really need this book? Because I know that there are some of you out there thinking that. <laughs> 
That's so smart. Yeah, that's really a great point. Yeah, so I divided part one into a set of six topics, and I'll just review what those are so that people can imagine how I've sort of broken it down. The first chapter is a 30,000-foot view, what happens when you starve yourself? And starvation, of course, means a restrictive eating disorder. It means binge eating disorder when someone restricts calories all day long and then binges at night. It may include bulimia nervosa if somebody has a restrictive component to that as well. Plus, it applies to anyone who's ever been on a diet and anyone who's ever tried a so-called cleanse. Our brains are tuned to interpret starvation very quickly and respond to save our lives. So I'll go back into that in a second. Chapter two is all about going into hibernation. What happens when the metabolism slows down in response to restricted caloric intake by contrast with how much one is asking of one's body? Part three is hormones and bones and what happens in the body when somebody's not taking in enough nutrition. Part four is the empty tank and organ trouble that occurs when there's just not enough fuel to take care of the body. Part five is called extreme presentations. And I start by a disclaimer or a warning to say anyone who's going to read about extreme presentations of malnutrition and feel triggered should skip it. Don't go there. Keep yourself safe. But because I did work in an inpatient hospital setting for critically medically compromised patients for eight years, those patients deserve to have their story told as well, and they deserve representation. And then part six of, of the initial part of the book, or chapter six, is starting to eat again and talking about nutritional rehabilitation. And so, you know, I think the overall message for part one, not enough calories, is that regardless of your body shape and size, if you are dieting, if you are doing disordered eating, so-called clean eating, or a carb-free diet, or a whole blah, 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 all of which are nonsense, what your cave person brain experiences is my mammal is starving. This makes so much sense. And for those who haven't heard me speak before, the cave person brain is the part of the brain that runs us as a mammal. And it's the part who, over evolution, kept us safe and survive, surviving during times of famine. This part of our brain is exquisitely tuned to pay attention to our environment and our energy intake. So within just a few days of caloric restriction, our cave person brain says, uh-oh, my mammal is in a famine. Start the physiologic changes. Now, every person is different with regards to who will show what medical manifestation. This is something to really dive into for a moment because it's a real source of personal invalidation and self-stigma. Because someone might say, I've been doing these eating disorder behaviors for X amount of time and my weight hasn't changed. Or I don't have any heart rate problems. Or my hair is still normal. Or my hands aren't cold. And they might say, oh, see, that's an example of how I'm not sick enough. 
But the fact is, every individual will have some sort of reaction to not getting in enough calories. And the range goes from vital sign changes similar to those of a hibernating bear who also isn't eating during the winter, where the heart rate gets slower, the blood pressure drops a little, the body gets cooler because we don't want to spend calories on keeping the body warm, the hands and feet get cooler and you feel chillier, sex hormones get turned off because the body doesn't want to spend extra calories on sex drive, having sex, having a period for females, or sustaining a pregnancy for females. Um, The bones may get thinner, the energy decreases, the sense of paranoia, rigidity, fear, and anxiety may rise even as restriction provides a welcome soothing for undesired emotions. All of these things happen physiologically when someone doesn't eat enough. And it happens fast and every person is different. I love that you emphasize that every person is different. And um, I think that we're probably finding out that genetics have relatively large part to play in that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Genetics Um, social stress, minority stress, traumatic experiences, all of these things impact how our body responds to the environment. It's also really important to say that part one is not the, here's the part for anorexia nervosa chapter. It does apply to those with anorexia nervosa but it also applies to the radical majority of individuals with disordered eating and eating disorders who are not in underweight bodies. They are in bodies that look quote unquote normal and that are invisible to the medical system as a result of that. They are in bodies that are larger and that get stigmatized by the medical system. So this is not just for people who look visibly underweight. So many people who go through diets are experiencing this physiology because their cave person brain doesn't know the difference. Inadequate calories means inadequate calories regardless of the size clothing you wear. Restriction means restriction. I know from having written before myself that There's usually, when you write a book, you sort of have to narrow things down and you have to be succinct. And that's really difficult. And so every chapter that you've got in that book, I'm sure that there's a very important reason as to why that chapter's in the book. And um, I'm excited to sort of explore some of those reasons a little bit more. And um, I imagine that some of those chapters as well will maybe be a little different than what I'd call traditional treatment might think of as this is important or relevant to eating disorder recovery. I'm sure that there's probably some additions in there as well that come from your experience and that um, unique medical perspective also. That's my hope. You know, I'm trained as a Western medicine physician, but I've really had to step out of my 
safe comfort zone of what I knew and was trained in order to appropriately care for individuals with eating disorders. I've had to draw from both the medical literature or where that was silent from really trusted clinicians, uh, gastroenterologists whom I really know are superb physicians to say, all right, what's the use for certain supplements? How do we avoid using antibiotics when we don't absolutely have to for a non-infectious cause? And we use something else that I was never trained on, but that turns out to really help my patients. I also tried in the vignette. So each of the chapters begins with a short imagined vignette. Nobody's personal information has been compromised in the creating of vignettes. And in designing them and thinking through patients that I've cared for before and situations I've encountered, I really tried to center marginalized populations where possible. I tried to name that patients were, for instance, of different ethnic backgrounds, different skin colors, different body sizes, um, because it's very important to name that in a lot of medical literature, whiteness is the default. And in a lot of eating disorder literature, thinness and whiteness and femaleness and ability to pay for care are the default. While those individuals deserve fabulous care if they fall into those categories, it's so important to recognize that the vast majority of people with eating disorders do not and represented by those labels. And so in creating the vignettes that I shared and in picking the cover images, Folks who go to Amazon and search for Sick Enough will see that the cover image is of highly diverse portraits of people's faces um, and bodies with the idea that if they pick it up and they say, huh, I see myself in this, I didn't know I could be represented in such a book. So the idea is to really remember that all over the world, in all different backgrounds, in all different bodies and genders and ages, spanning from childhood into one's 70s and 80s, are gonna be people who haven't been well served and whom I hope to really help with this book. Well, I'm pretty excited because I think that's a really valuable resource. I don't think there's half enough focus on the medical side of eating disorders, the medical condition that malnutrition actually is, and how it affects one's brain and body pretty extensively. So I'm thrilled that this book has been written and it's out there and we can all use it as a resource. So I have put the chapter outline in the show notes this episode, and I'm going to have Dr. Gaudiani come back on. If you can email me any questions that you might have, look at those chapters and see you know, what questions arise when you when you look at those tra- chapter titles? And email me at info at tabithafra.com. That's I-N-F-O at symbol tabithafra.com. And um, I'll put some of those questions to her. Thank you for listening. I hope that you are having a wonderful week. Until next time, cheerio.